I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Jack McBride. He's an assistant clinical professor in the geriatric department at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine. Today we talk about forms and the importance of advanced care planning. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk to you and get a better understanding of uh, clinicians' point of view about all of these advanced care planning forms. I hear people using advanced directives and advanced care planning. Is there a difference between the two descriptions? Uh, You know, I think both terms are used fairly uh, similarly. Uh, There's probably some technical differences depending on the particular audience you're talking to. You know, I think advanced care planning is, is a more general term. Uh, people do advanced care planning as to what they're, how they're going to manage their asthma flare-up, for example. The idea being that you think in advance of the care that you might need if this happens or that happens. So uh, advanced care planning is probably a, a more general term. Uh, advanced directives as a term is used more uh, in terms of how you document uh, and how you try to accomplish uh, that plan. And it could be used more generally, but it's that term is usually used when it comes to end-of-life planning. So how do you, as they explain this to the normal individual walking down the street, what is advanced care planning? Um, it's, dis- it's helping your family and your loved ones and your physicians uh, around you know what your wishes are in advance of um, major medical events or changes. We can never plan to get a serious diagnosis, but you still really encourage people to do all of this planning because it's almost like having that birth plan. You know, you might not want any kind of medication, you want a natural birth, but once you get in there, you're yelling for an epidural. I mean, but the planning process does help you better understand what you want, but it can change even at the moment that you do get a diagnosis, correct? Was it Benjamin Franklin said that the only thing certain are death and taxes? So unless we have major uh, medical uh, advances that I'm not aware of at this point, uh, we all are going to die. And so we can plan for that. What we can't necessarily have a lot of clarity around is exactly when and exactly how. But as human beings, most of us like to have some degree of control in our life and in our death and be able to, to the extent possible, have the people around us understand what our wishes are. And that's really what this is about. So tell me a little bit about the forms that the individuals need to be aware of. Okay, so in in North Carolina, and this does vary from state to state, the legislature has established a number of advanced care or advanced directives. The ones that I use most frequently in my practice are the the living will and the health care power of attorney. There's also some other documents around anatomical donations and around mental health care uh, for folks with mental illness or developmental delay. 
but the, the ones that I typically use have to do with living wills and health care powers of attorney. Um, you can have those sorts of documents drawn up by your personal attorney, uh, but they can also be, um, you can also use templates that the legislature has provided in the law uh, and use those templates and complete them yourself, get them witnessed appropriately, notarized appropriately, and they are legally uh, binding documents that you don't have to have an attorney involved with in order to be executed. That's a big misconception um, right now is that you need a lawyer to fill out some of these forms. It's it's really your personal choice if you want to use an attorney versus fill them out on your own, correct? Correct. You know, certainly if you're doing estate planning and working with an attorney with regard to setting up trust and figuring out your, your will and other things, this is makes sense to do it as part of that. But for folks who aren't interested, involved, or uh, may not have the resources to hire an attorney to do these things, the legislature specifically made this very available to all of us uh, without having to pay attorney fees on an hourly basis to, to get this done. So tell me the two forms, living will and health care agent or health care proxy, these terms vary by state, whether you're you know, in North Carolina or you're in another state. Tell me in very simple terms, what is a living will? So a living will is an if-then statement. In your documents, you determine what are the ifs and what are the thens. The three standard ifs since 2007, when the form was revised, include advanced dementia, a persistent vegetative state or coma, or terminal illness. And you can choose one, two, or three of those ifs as pertaining to your wish. Once you've made that decision as to which of those circumstances you wish to address, you then can say what your wishes are with regard to care. And you are able to decide and tell those around you whether or not you wish life-sustaining or life-prolonging measures to be used if you're in that particular circumstance. And then you are also able to specify if you're in that circumstance whether or not you wish artificial nutrition and hydration of food and water to be provided. You're a physician, you're at the UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine. Some people don't know what they don't know at the end of life. And as a physician and me working in the healthcare industry, we know sometimes at the end of life, hydration, nutrition is not, is not benefiting the patient. How, how do we get the normal day individual to know these sort of things at the end of life? Is it just through continual education or physician one-on-one conversation? There's certainly a role for uh, conversation and education between the physician and other healthcare uh, providers and uh, patients. There's a, certainly a role for um, hospice and agencies on aging and, and other entities in the community. Um, I think my personal experience is that most people start to pay attention to this when it impacts them or their friends or their family. So a lot of times it's more of a personal trigger to think about these issues um, as opposed to 
some outside uh, trigger. Why have a healthcare agent, a healthcare proxy? I feel this form is probably one of the most important forms. Um, but tell us a little bit about, in your professional opinion, why this form stands out. The idea behind the healthcare power of attorney is, again, that it is an if-then statement. Uh, the if is if you're not able to make your own healthcare decisions, then who you wish to make those decisions for you. Um, and that's critically important. Um, if you do not have a healthcare power of attorney executed, then the uh, state, the, the physicians, uh, other healthcare uh, workers uh, caring for you are going to do the best they can using state law uh, to figure out who should speak for you. And sometimes it's fairly straightforward. If you're married, uh, it's your spouse, if they are able and willing. If you're not, it's uh, the majority of your reasonably available uh, children uh, in most circumstances. And then there's a, a, a next of kin uh, hierarchy that's, that's looked at. Um, if your spouse is who you would wish to ha be your health care power of attorney and you have one child and if your spouse isn't available, you want your child to be that person, then it's going to be the same regardless of whether you have a health care power of attorney or not. However, if that's not the case, if your spouse, for example, has some cognitive impairment and your children uh, are multiple states away and you don't feel really understand what your wishes would be, then you're better off having a good friend or a neighbor that you've had conversations with about these issues to be the one making decisions for you. The idea here is not so much to have someone make decisions for you as much as it is to have someone who understands what those decisions would be if you were able to make them yourself. That's a very good point. And and you most people, just because you have a healthcare power of attorney or healthcare agents or a proxy, as long as you can communicate, that is that form does is not implemented, correct? As long as you have decision-making capacity, so people may be able to communicate but not understand the implications of their decisions or, you know, not have decision-making capacity. So that's um, – and that capacity can vary from time to time. It may be uh, – people may have decision-making capacity for simple decisions but not for more complex decisions. So, again, the if-then element of the healthcare power of attorney is – if you're not able to make your own decision about a particular healthcare issue, then the person that you've named is the person that your uh, healthcare providers are going to look to to help make that decision. You know, recently I've seen a lot of people delay filling out this healthcare agent, and their family is now has some type of dementia, and they have to go into the court system to claim their parent unable to make decisions and become a guardian. Because the more and more we age, the more of us are going to have dementia in our later years, whether it's onset from old age or whether it's Alzheimer's or uh, any sort of form of dementia. So what would you encourage people um, and what kind of age would you encourage adult children to have a sit down conversation with their parents concerning this healthcare agent form? You know, it's really never too young or 
healthy. You know, it, it's not so much about that as it is, um, you know, some people develop illness that's um, kind of chronic and indolent and gradually progressive. And, and others of us, uh, you know, suddenly wake up with a stroke uh, at any age. So it's, it's one of those things that you're much better off having had conversations about people understanding what your wishes are before it's needed. Um, one of the things that I do strongly encourage folks to do is to not stop with just having one healthcare power of attorney, but to list a primary person. But if that person's not able or willing to have an alternate and then maybe a second alternate so that it's clear. Um, so for example, if you have your spouse as primary and you've got two children, um, if you don't have a healthcare power of attorney or you don't have your children listed in order, then the physicians can be in a very difficult position if, if the spouse is, say, cognitively impaired or not able to make decisions for other reasons, and the two children are in disagreement, you know, then the whole system kind of grinds to a halt. Whereas if you as an individual um, are comfortable that, that one child, it, it doesn't need to be the more senior one or it may, doesn't necessarily need to be the one that lives closest by. Uh, but, but if you feel that one child has a better understanding of what your wishes are and would do a, a better job of making those decisions that you would have made for yourself and they are the, you know, the first alternate uh, and then your other child is the second alternate makes it very clear for everybody in advance uh, and you avoid um, drama and uh, delay and uh, ill feelings. Um, the, the other circumstance that I see is um, it's less of an issue now that same-sex marriage is legal, uh, but for many couples who uh, were not able to be legally married, uh, and wish to have their partner listed as their healthcare power of attorney, uh, that has to be executed in a legal form because they couldn't be a spouse. Now that's a little bit different, uh, but there you can think of similar circumstances where people may not want a family member as their healthcare power of attorney, but want their best friend. Or um, I've had people uh, have their minister be their healthcare power of attorney. I've had people be their attorney as their healthcare power of attorney. So there are many choices. It doesn't have to be family members. You know, that's a very important point because my, my father, we've had these conversations and he's, he's absolutely told me that if you're on a ventilator in the hospital because of a wreck or anything, I'm not going to be able to pull, pull that plug or advise the physicians to withdraw treatment. So if that is what you want, I am not a good person to implement your wishes. So choose someone else because as a father, I'm just unable to physically do that. And so it's really interesting how you can have these conversations openly. Um, but you know what? It, it's it's interesting when it comes to these healthcare agents, when you have multiple children and who's first and who's second. And there's a lot of dynamics that could come out if it is not communicated prior to implementation. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And, and again, if... I, I do have families where they've had their health care power of attorney drawn up by uh, an attorney and the, you know, multiple children are listed jointly and severally as the, as the, the alternate health care power of attorney, which basically means we have to take a vote, which is not a very 
good way in most cases to make difficult decisions. Because if no, all three of them aren't going or not going to agree, the physician, the clinician trying to provide the care and the wishes of the, the patient who cannot speak for themselves is kind of stuck. Exactly. Um, and, and everybody has to get on the same page before something is implemented. Don't, do you agree with that as well? I mean, technically, with three people, you can't have a tie vote. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, true. That's true. Or four children, uh, you know, that it becomes problematic. Um, whereas if, if things are clear, um, that one person is the power of attorney and, and that decision legally holds, then it's a little more clear-cut path to making decisions and getting things done. So the forms that we're talking about are basically in in the hands of the individual. But then there's something called physician orders that are implemented because they're physician orders by a provider. And so can you talk a little bit about the physician orders that are now, some of them are fairly new in the last, you know, seven, 10 years, but there's one called a DNR and then there's, you know, most or pulse that has taken a movement nationally. So help us better understand what these forms are and why is it a physician's order. So the way I usually talk with my patients about this is that the, the healthcare power of attorney and the living will, because they are if-then statements and only take effect um, when the if is taking effect, are more looking at the end of life. They don't really address the circumstance. Um, you know, what happens if I'm walking across campus and keel over? And when the rescue squad gets there, I have no heartbeat and I have no breathing. Um, that's not addressed in the living will. It's not addressed in the healthcare power of attorney. The default behavior of uh, any healthcare provider uh, and emergency medical services in this state is going to be to attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Um, and that's exactly the default that you want as a public health service <laughs> for folks to not be looking for documents, which will usually be in a safety deposit box somewhere. Uh, but for my patients who, for whatever reason, don't wish aggressive resuscitation attempts um, in the event of their heart stopping and their breathing stopping, then the state provides a, uh, a specific document uh, called the portable do not resuscitate order um, that you can have uh, your physician or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant sign. And then that document, if it is seen by a healthcare worker or a rescue squad uh, EMS person can be followed uh, that can allow a natural death. But you don't recommend me. I'm, I'm 45. Most, yeah, I'm, I'm healthy. You wouldn't recommend me having a DNR. It's a personal choice. Uh, it wouldn't be my choice probably at 45. Um, if I was suffering from uh, a terrible illness that I could see uh, going badly, and I might make that decision and want that uh, kind of order to be in place. But if I'm in a car accident 
Uh, you want, especially someone healthy, someone who just had a traumatic um, episode, whether it's a car accident or a sudden heart attack, you know, if it's not predicted, do you still think it's a personal choice? Absolutely, it's a personal choice. Most most people are going to make the, the choice in those circumstances that they don't want a portable do not resuscitate order in place. But I have, you know, healthy 97-year-olds who tell me, if my heart quits and I quit breathing, leave me alone. And if that's their wish, they don't have cancer. They don't have heart failure. They don't have, they've not had a stroke. Uh, if that's their wish, then my role as a healthcare provider is to try to follow that wish. And the portable do not resuscitate order is a way for your, your wish to be followed by the rescue squad. Let me, let me give you an anecdote. Um, my grandmother uh, died in her sleep, thankfully, uh, many years ago now. Uh, my grandfather uh, wasn't aware of all these sorts of details. Um, and when he discovered that she had passed uh, the next morning, um, you know, her body was cold and stiff and blue. He made the mistake of calling the rescue squad rather than calling the funeral home. And when the rescue squad got there, they did what they are legally required to do, which is to attempt to resuscitate her. And so he was there watching them do what they do, pushing on her chest, cracking her ribs, putting a tube down her throat, trying to breathe for her, trying to start intravenous lines to give her drugs because that's what resuscitation involves. And he didn't have any way to tell them stop. Okay. So, you know, you can see circumstances where even if death wasn't expected because of any particular medical reason, one might wish to have that sort of order in place. So what about, you know, in North Carolina where we're located, uh, you know, we use the most form, but pulsed is used in some other states as well as post and other sort of physician orders. What is the difference between a DNR and a most pulsed form? Okay. So the, the DNR form only speaks to the issue of what care do you wish if your heart has stopped and or your breathing has stopped. The, the most form, which is North Carolina's version of the pulsed, allows you to be more granular with regard to how you wish to be cared for when your heart is beating and you're breathing. So there's, there's several sections. The first section of the most form is exactly the same thing as the entire portable DNR order. You know, if your heart has stopped and you quit breathing, do you wish resuscitation to be attempted? Yes or no. But then the rest of the form says, okay, you have a heartbeat and you're breathing. How do you wish to be taken care of? And so it allows you to make more granular decisions so, for example, there's a general goals of care section that says, I want everything done. Send me to the hospital, put me in the intensive care unit, put me on dialysis, uh, you know, put a tube down my throat, put me on a breathing machine, uh, shock me, do whatever can be done. It'd be the most aggressive type of care. There's an intermediate level of care that says, well, go to the hospital if indicated but don't put me in the intensive care unit 
don't put a tube down my throat and put me on a breathing machine. You know, let's um, kind of be halfway here. And then the, the third option on the form is comfort care. And what that says is don't send me to the hospital unless my comfort cannot be maintained where I am now. And let's work very hard on making comfort my priority. So those are kind of large um, ch chunks of how people can be taken care of, and they're little check boxes. You can cross things out, you can add things to it, but it allows you to be more granular in your this your, uh, your expression of your wishes in the situation where you're really sick, but your heart's still beating and you're still breathing. Um, there's then additional sections that talk about whether or not and how to use antibiotics, whether or not and how to use intravenous fluids, uh, whether or not and how to use feeding tubes. So these are all kind of um, decisions that can come into play, and it allows you to make your wishes known in advance of the circumstance coming up where they might be needed. So we talked about all of these four major forms, the living will, the healthcare agent proxy, and DNR, the most form. The, one of the other sides of this this whole advanced care planning movement is the conversation with individuals prior to this crisis. How important do you think the conversation is prior to a healthcare crisis, even when these forms are implemented or done or completed, how is that conversation and when do, would you recommend these conversations occurring? I think it's the most important part. I mean, it, because if you have no documents in place and you're really sick in the hospital and you can't make your own decisions, then the decisions are going to get made. And if the person who's your next of kin is familiar with what your wishes are, then your wishes are going to get implemented because they can tell the physicians and other healthcare workers what, what your wishes would be. Um, if you have made all your decisions and put all that in writing uh, and haven't talked with anybody about it uh, and the doctors try to follow those wishes, um, boy, it can get a, to a real mess if the, the spouse or the children are saying, oh, dad would never want this or mom would never want this and uh, get into a real uh, battle of wills and, um, you know, an, an ugly situation where people are not on the same page with trying to follow the wishes of uh, the person that's in the hospital. So the conversation, I think, is the most important. Uh, my experience in general has been that healthcare providers can be um, sometimes reluctant to bring these things up. Uh, certainly um, children and other family members can be somewhat reluctant to bring these things up. Uh, but my experience is that as folks age and they start planning uh, for their, their future, uh, they're making decisions about uh, who's going to get the family silver? Who's who's going to get the uh, um, you know the 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 sixty four uh, Mustang in the garage? Uh, and so they're thinking ahead, and they understand that life is finite, and that uh, you know you know my, my my favorite is my my beloved mother in law, who um, uh, you know won't buy green bananas. 
um, as the saying goes. And, uh, uh, you know, so people are thinking about these things and for them, it's a relief. And to be able to talk with their, their children, their loved ones, their family, their designated um, health care uh, agent um, about what they wish so that they feel that they have done their planning. And it is a huge gift to the people who can be called upon to make those decisions to understand what the person wants. Uh, I mean, the, the most tragic things I see are when somebody's in the hospital, they're really sick, they've had a stroke, whatever, and they're not able to make their own decisions, and their family honestly has no clue what they would have wanted. And so they're struggling among themselves about what they would want for themselves, what they'd want for their loved ones, sort of like your dad was talking about with not, you know, even if it was clear to you that you wouldn't want to be on a respirator long term, um, you know, he, he would have a hard time making that decision for you. So um, the conversation is cr critically important. I can't say that it's ever too early to have that conversation. Uh, and it's never too late to have that conversation because people's understanding and wishes can change over time. Uh, and what I want now when I'm 93 and I've got metastatic prostate cancer, but I'm still getting around pretty well, might be different than what I wanted when I was 72 and playing golf three times a week. So you, you recommend visiting these forms once a year, possibly? Um, whether it's the form or whether it's the conversation, um, that's, that's certainly not too often. So to wrap, um, I wanted to ask you your opinion. I feel advanced care planning is a dated system. We're talking forms that end up in lockboxes and in, in the bank vaults. Um, how do we get to the point that we're mobilizing advanced care planning so it's at our fingertips? The worst thing, and what I've read in research, is that families have a hard time withdrawing treatment versus if treatment was never implemented. So how do we take this dated form paper system to a more innovative mobile system, in your opinion? Well, we do have a couple of things that are available right now. Um, the, um, the Secretary of State of North Carolina has an advanced directives database. Um, you may uh, mail your original documents to uh the Secretary of State's office uh, with a form that you filled out and a, a $10 check, and you will get back a uh, your original forms and then a username and a password. So no matter where you are, uh, those documents can be accessed. Um, you could do that and put your username and password on a wallet card that you carry with you. I've had people put it on a MetaAlert bracelet or MetaAlert dog tag so that that information is available, just like it would be if you were on a blood thinner or on insulin. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, you know, I think there's potential uh, for there to be other electronic um, types of solutions. Um, there are... Um, thumb drives that people can uh, load this information on with their emergency medical information uh, and use as a key fob uh, that can be available. 
And there are some hospitals nationally that are asking people to, you know, scan these documents into their medical EMR, their local hospital affiliation. How do you feel about that? I think that's wonderful. The problem is that it only helps that particular healthcare institution. You know, if you have your car accident across a dotted line and you go to another hospital that doesn't share information, then it's not doing you any good. So absolutely, here at UNC, uh, we spend a lot of time and effort scanning in people's healthcare powers of attorney, living wills, do not resuscitate orders, uh, most forms into our electronic health records. So they're available to everyone in the system. Uh, but if you, you know, 12 miles away, go to a different hospital, that information is, uh, I won't say it's impossible to find, but it's much more difficult to find. And the, despite talking about uh, different ways that healthcare systems can share information regionally, um, in most parts of the country, that's not really up and running enough to be an effective solution. Well, these are some very important facts, um, forms that need to be filled out along with conversation and allowing it to somehow follow you, especially if you have a chronic illness. Um, I cannot tell you much how much I appreciate you coming on today and helping us better understand the forms and that the conversation is really a vital part of this advanced care planning. Um, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, really, I hope that we can all encourage everyone in this not only in the state of North Carolina but nationally to it's never too soon to have these documents in place absolutely and thank you for your help in getting that word out today thanks for joining us today and remember you're the designer